0: Let's pray together. Father, in front of us this morning is a very important and compelling text that asks some very difficult questions, and yet these are questions that we are all familiar with. At least in one time or another, all of us will experience a moment when we feel forsaken, when we feel abandoned by you. And so I'm so grateful that there's this kind of psalm here because it just is so helpful in writing our thinking in those moments. And I pray today that you'd help me to make this clear and also that you'd help me to unpack fully the connection between this psalm and the glorious message of the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray for your help today. Meet our needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're presently in a series in the book of Psalms, looking at a number of Psalms that ask hard questions, that ask tough questions, questions that are honest, questions that are honest to God. And what we have seen already is that these Psalms, when they ask these hard questions, give both voice and verse to the pain that we feel. In that respect, they're incredibly helpful They, they live where we live, and they meet us right where we are, and I think that's why we love the Psalms so much. Psalm 22 is a psalm that is filled with pain, and when you read it, you can't help but not only hear the pain, but in the back of your mind, you ought to also be thinking about another event, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, because like no other psalm, this psalm has the cross right in the middle of it. Now. We who benefit from being on the other side of the cross, looking back on Psalm 22, you can see it very clearly. But at the time when the psalmist wrote the psalm, he had no idea how this would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, but it certainly is. I mean, think of it as the nauseating effects of the cross were having the full effect on Jesus as he bore the wrath of a holy God. He quotes Psalm twenty two one as an expression of what he's going through when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a a pivotal moment when Jesus hangs on the cross and cries out these words from Psalm 22, a a pivotal moment in the death narrative, a crucial moment in what we call the gospel or the good news. And just think about that with me for a moment, that in the midst of this message about the gospel, this, this, this greatest and most spiritually defining moment in all of human history... While we have the beautiful reality of the gospel, we also have the gut wrenching emotions of feeling as if you've been abandoned by God. We have both. Why have you forsaken me? In the most hopeful, life giving moment in the entire Bible is one of the most frightening of all human emotions, feeling like you've been abandoned. Jesus is willfully abandoned. Do you know this pain? You know, there's something unique about being forsaken. At, at one level, kids, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you know what it's like to be lost as a kid with the fear that my parents have left me. I remember when I was about five or six years old, my mom had taken me to shop at Meyer Thrifty Acres. That's what it was called back then. And we were walking around Thrifty Acres looking for things, and I asked if I could go over to the toy section, and so she let me go over there. And so I was just kind of perusing the toys and got bored. And so I went on to the next aisle without her permission, and then the next aisle without her permission, and then realized, ooh, I kind of wandered from where she told me to go. So I began to look for her where she had left me, um, let me go, and she wasn't there. Well, what happened is she was looking for me, and if you kind of had a, a lens over the store, you might have seen these two people doing like a dance, moving, you know, around, crisscrossing each other's paths and not being able to find each other. Well, after a while, it got a little scary as a five or six year old kid, and so I started to panic, thinking, oh my word, I've lost my mom. Or maybe she's lost and I gotta find her, right? And so I'm trying to go around. The store, and I'm um, getting nervous, and and eventually a, a nice worker found me and said, I, "Little boy, are you lost?" And through my sniffles, I said, "Yes." And um, so she said, "Well, come with me." So she brought me to the customer service desk, and the person behind the desk asked me my name, asked me what my mom's name was, and then over the speaker of Meyer 50 Acres says, "Well, Marion Vroga please come pick up her child at this customer service desk, right?" And then the whole store knew, right, that I was lost, and I'll never forget the moment. When down the aisle, this tiled aisle, with sweaters on the on the right and the checkout counter on the left, I see my mom, and she's doing that proverbial mom walk-run thing. You know what I mean? When she's, she's, you know, she's, she's, she's doing that. You know what I'm talking about? And I saw her. She's doing that. She's not running, but she's not walking. It's something in between, right? It's not very pretty. You know, she's just doing that thing because she's got to get to her boy and never forget being grabbed in the arms of my mom. And, oh, I wasn't lost. And that feeling of feeling like you've been abandoned, even though you knew you you really weren't, but it's a scary feeling. So my my story turned out okay. Unfortunately, other people's don't. I'll never forget sitting on the stairs in our former home in Michigan between the first and second story, and next to me was a little girl, eight years old, who'd just been brought into our home as a foster child. The night before, the police had come, and mom had been involved in all sorts of bad things, and... Police had come and taken her out of the home along with her two other sisters. And there we are, sitting in our home, been in our house about five hours. And she's sitting there, hand in her face, tears, quiet little cry. And she said, I just miss my mom. And she was abandoned. And that's a really, really strong emotion. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you, you relate to that little girl. Your your mom or your dad abandoned you. Maybe for you, Father's Day is a really hard day because your dad is AWOL. Or maybe your parents, they they stayed at home, but they were emotionally AWOL. They were just gone. Some of you know what it's like to be abandoned by a spouse, be forsaken for another. You know what it's like to have your kids say to you, I'm, I'm out of here, and they never come back. This emotion of being forsaken is a strong one, but let's... Let's go to another level. What if What if it's not just a person? What if What if it's God? What if, what if you feel like God has forsaken you? What if you feel like God has abandoned you? How do you deal with that emotion? How do you cope with that kind of pain? Well, that's what Psalm 22 is for. See, what Psalm 22 does is it helps us immensely in that it shows us that two things can coexist. And I'm, everything I'm going to say today, you can boil down to this simple equation, and it's this that pain plus belief equals hope. In other words, listen to me, pain and belief can coexist. You just live in life with two parallel tracks. On the one hand, you're in pain, you're hurting, and circumstances are difficult and hard, and on the other hand is this firm, deep belief that God is good, and you're a follower of Jesus, and you're not giving up and what psalm 22 shows us is that pain and belief can actually coexist and that is so helpful if you're here today in pain and the pain is intractable meaning it's not going to change the relationship's not going to doesn't not going to come back the, the it seems like there's not much hope it seems like you've been dealing with this for years pain and belief can coexist, And I want to show you this in the text this morning because the psalmist bounces back and forth from pain, then to belief, then pain to belief, pain to belief, and then he ends in hope. And it's, it's a beautiful treatment of what to do when you feel forsaken. So, we begin in verse 1 with this pain of being forsaken. The psalm begins with a very famous statement. One made by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Hebrew word for God is the word El. It's a word that means mighty one in strength. I mean, and this makes sense, doesn't it? If God is God, then He's more powerful than anybody else. That's why He's God. He's, he's strong, He's powerful, He's mighty. And that's what makes the other word in the text so painful, forsaken. Because here is a God who's powerful enough to do something, and He instead... How it feels in Psalm 22, verse 1, God chooses to abandon you. To be forsaken means to abandon, to depart, to to loose. It's, It's used in the Old Testament for Israel when they committed apostasy against God, when they were guilty of spiritual adultery. The idea behind this idea of forsaken is that one has broken their covenant or they're acting in a way that's just not right. And so when the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is talking here with emotionally laden terms. I mean, even look at the second part of the verse. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, the idea is, God, I'm dying down here. And why are you abandoning me? The problem here is the psalmist knows that God's rescuing God. I mean... some of the names of God, for instance, he's El Yeshua, he's the God of salvation. He's El Shaddai, the God who is all-sufficient. And even though God has the power and the ability, there are times when God doesn't act, when he waits. And if you've ever been in this position, you know how hard this can be. And I promise you, you will be here one day. there will be in a moment where you will feel, God, have you forsaken me? Have you abandoned me? Where are you right now? Notice that he ramps it up even further in verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. Notice how frustrating this is. God, I'm crying out to you, but there's silence. You do not answer, and by night I find no rest. In other words, God, I'm crying out to you, but there's silence, and then at night I can't even, I can't even get any rest. I'm exhausted. This is a confusing and exhausting moment. And it's compounded by the fact that the psalmist knows what you know. God could change it instantly. He could. he He's had all the power in the world. He could change it instantly. And yet there are times when God is simply silent and doesn't do anything. These are strong emotions. What I'm saying here should... At one level, make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And, and, and yet at the same time, these are the very emotions that Jesus himself experienced when he hung on the cross. And yet the reality is, is that Jesus experienced these emotions in a depth that we can't even fully understand. Because he has full fellowship with the Father in intimacy and oneness that we don't know anything about. And here is this Son of God who hangs between heaven and earth, enduring the pain of an undeserved death. When Jesus hangs on the cross, he is really forsaken. So you and I may feel forsaken, but Jesus is actually forsaken and is forsaken on purpose. God willfully chooses to forsake his own son. He experiences the ultimate pain of being abandoned. The Father abandoned His Son. And we can hardly fathom what that pain was like. Now the beauty of this psalm is realizing the extent to which Jesus was abandoned so that you would never experience the ultimate abandonment That comes when God fully removes His presence, and that's in a place called hell. So the beautiful message here of the Gospel is this, is that Jesus experienced your abandonment. Your sinfulness causes a separation from God. And Jesus embraced all of that abandonment so that even when you feel abandoned... Jesus has set the floor of that abandonment. You can't get below the abandonment of Jesus. In other words, God has set a limit as to how far you can actually be abandoned. In other words, you will never truly be abandoned like Jesus was. And you have Jesus to thank for that. When you feel like heaven is silent, and as though life is painful, just remember that there is a floor To your abandonment. And Jesus endured abandonment so that you would never have to experience it. You may feel abandoned, but because of the abandonment of Jesus, you never truly are forsaken if you've received Christ as your Savior. If you haven't, then you will know abandonment like you can't imagine. You want God out of your life? With hell, there is no presence of God. And you are completely and totally abandoned. So that's the pain of being forsaken. Notice what happens now is that the psalmist brings in immediately a parallel track of thinking. Look at verse 3 and then also verse 9. Notice the little word yet. There is power in that word yet. In both, in both verse 3 and in verse 9, the psalmist says, why, am I, why have you forsaken me yet? What does he say? Yet you are holy. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, yet you are he who took me from the womb. That word yet is really important. Let me explain why. So often we talk about the importance of the word but. For instance, the word but. But God commends his love toward us and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or in the story of Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we love, don't we, those but God moments. When God comes and he turns the corner, he, he, he makes a difference, he, he changes the circumstances. I was going this direction, but God came things were going this way but god intervened but the reality is those but god moments come but there may be long distances while you wait and that's what the word yet is for so what do you do if you're living right now in a position that's hard and difficult and you feel abandoned and you're waiting for the but god moment but it's not coming very quickly Well, the answer is you live in the yet. And you know what the yet is? The yet is the parallel track of I'm hurting, yet you are holy. I'm hurting, yet you are righteous. I'm hurting, yet I know you are faithful. I'm struggling here, yet I know who you are. It is the parallel track of our pain and God's providence. It is the parallel track of our suffering and His sovereignty. And those two things just are. And when they are, there is hope. Pain and belief equals hope. Yet is for seasons when you are waiting for the but God moments. Look what he says. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. So what is he doing? He's banking his heart. He's anchoring his soul to the reality that God has redeemed, he has saved, he has rescued in the past. So God, I I feel forsaken, yet I know you can rescue me. God, I feel completely abandoned, yet I know you are righteous. It is the power of yet that preserves you as you're waiting for the but-God moments. And some of you need to learn how to live in the yet. I know you long for the but-God moment, but you need to learn how to live in the parallel realities of pain and providence, of suffering and sovereignty, and just learn to live with two parallel tracks. And that's what the psalmist does. To you they cried, verse 5, and were rescued. They trusted in you, they trusted and were not put to shame. What's he, what he's doing here is in the midst of this pain, he's anchoring his soul to God in terms of who God is and what he has done. In the midst of all of the pain of silence, moments when you feel like abandoned like you've been abandoned. You know what you do in those moments? You fuel the power of yet with the Word of God. You look at the Word of God and you go, look how God delivered, look what He did, look how He rescued people, and you remind your soul that God is a rescuing God, even though you still feel abandoned. It's not that you deny that you feel abandoned, but you say, look God, why have you forsaken me, yet you are holy? Why do I cry to you? Yet you answer prayer, and you live in the reality of these two parallel tracks. See the way in which god delivered in the past see the way god delivered with his people and you anchor your soul to that specifically specifically you look to the most glorious of all of god's redemptive moments which would be what he did with his son jesus you, you realize that jesus's abandonment was a part of god's plan You look at the crucifixion through the lens not only as this is the means by which someone receives eternal life, the crucifixion is not only the means by which people are have their sins forgiven, the crucifixion is also how you handle the thought of God, I feel abandoned. You look at the cross and you realize even in the abandonment of Jesus, God rescued his own son and the divine plan of God in the midst of all this abandonment of his own son was to rescue his own people. So God has a plan, you just don't see it all the time. So if you're in the middle of one of these between moments, you use the gospel as your lifeline when you're on the dark side of God's will dark side of God's will is a phrase I've used to describe what it feels like to be in an orbit of your life when you're like on the dark side of the moon. You know the sun is over here and it's shining, but you come around in the shadow of that moon, of the the mystery of God's providence, and it's cold and it's dark, and you wonder how long are we going to be here, and you're coming around the dark side of the will, and you wonder how long until the sun begins to rise on God's providence again. And what you do in the dark side of the will of God moments is you anchor your soul to the gospel. You remind your soul, Even in the darkness of the death of Jesus, God was still working his plan. And when your soul begins to wander, or when the enemy begins to accuse you or suggest to you, God has forgotten you, God has forsaken you, you take the enemy back to the cross, you take your own soul back to the cross, and you remind yourself when you're in the dark side of the will of God that God is always faithful, He's always true. And if you need any example of that, just simply look at the cross of Jesus. No greater abandonment, no greater suffering, no greater pain, and no greater victory. And that's the beauty of what God does. When God is in control, He can take anything, even the murder of His own Son, and use it for redemptive purposes. You know how frustrating it must be to be Satan? Everything he tries, God countermoves. And everything Satan does works right into God's plans. So here we have this, this pain, belief, pain, belief. In the midst of this, we're called to look at Jesus. I mean this is the argument of Hebrews 12 Hebrews 12 says therefore Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. What is the cloud of of witnesses? It's all these people who have gone before us. You read your Bible, Moses and Joshua. You, You look at Paul and Timothy and Titus. You see how the early church, how God met their needs, and you see this great cloud of witnesses, and you say to your soul, If God has been faithful to all these people, will he not also be faithful to me? And then as well, you look at the greatest example of this, and that also being Jesus, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Then the writer says this, and this, this verse may be the whole reason why you are here today consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted you weary coming to church faint-hearted today been praying about the same thing over and over and over got a heartache so big in your soul and it doesn't seem like there's any answer coming how do you deal with that you don't place your hope on the change of circumstances because the circumstances might never change So where's the hope? The hope is you consider Jesus so you do not become faint-hearted or grow weary. This is the power of yet. Pain, belief, pain, belief, pain. Verse 6, go back and this is, this is what happens and when you're in a struggle like this you know it one minute you're thinking all godly and righteous the next you're really down and it's a battle back and forth back and forth there's no magic formula it's a fight and verse six to eight extended he says i am a worm and not a man never felt like that i'm just eating dirt lower beyond low he's scorned by mankind he's despised by the people all who see me mock me They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him behind his back. They're making faces at him. Verse 8, they throw his faith into his face. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. So we've had family members say that. Well, if you're such a Christian, why do these things happen to you? If you guys claim to be a follower of Jesus, then you should have perfect kids. A dumb thing to say right <laughs> don't say that but it is you know if you follow jesus then two people should just get along and stay in their marriage well sure they should but sin is bad and people throw this in your face how can you be a christian and have this stuff happen? and you can think ah, yeah how can i be a christian and have this happen this is what happens in the text throws it right in his face again the parallels are so Clear in regards to the crucifixion of Jesus, just listen to isaiah fifty three he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not they, the, the, Jesus is gross they don 't want to look at him because he 's so marred or, or even in matthew twenty seven the 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 chief priests almost quote psalm twenty two Matthew records this, "...so also the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they mocked Him, saying, He saved others, He can't save Himself. If He's the King of Israel, let Him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in Him." What arrogance! He trusts in God, let God deliver Him, if He desires Him. What What a horrible thing to say. If God desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God." And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Here's Jesus enduring the reality of Psalm 22. So listen to me, friends. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned, and he also knows what it's like to be abused. So it's not just enough that some of you experience the abandonment. But it's that you endured the ridicule of people who piled on in the midst of your grief. It's just like, man, this this is hard enough without your words and your attitude and you piling all this other stuff on me and then what does the psalmist do? He goes right back to belief again. So he battles pain, belief, pain, belief. Notice his focus here again on who God is and His faithfulness. Verse 9, You are He who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. So here he is. He's he's anchoring his life to the sovereignty of God. That God, you were behind this. You made me trust. This is why I believe in the sovereignty of God. Because without it, if God isn't in control of all things, even the bad things, then life just completely falls apart. I have got to know that even the hard things in my life are controlled by a God who is infinitely good, even though His purposes are often a mystery to me. We have to be able to anchor our hearts to a hymn like great is thy faithfulness that says, Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not as thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Meaning, God, you've always been faithful. Hard to know what you're doing at times. Yes, confusing, painful, but someday it will all be clear. And maybe not entirely in this lifetime. Verse 10, on you was I cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. The psalmist could look back on his life. He sees God's goodness. You've been good to me. There's the other yet in verse 9. I'm having a hard time here, God, but yet I know you are faithful. And his request here is based not only on who God is, but also on what God has done before. And he recounts the many ways in which God has been faithful. He knows that sometimes there's hard circumstances, but he believes that behind the hard circumstances is a goodness of God that is orchestrating all of the events One of my favorite hymns and was a lifeline to me during some really, really dark seasons in our own family's journey was the hymn by William Cooper. He said this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's faithfulness is as personal for the psalmist as it has been for you. And when life becomes painful, when it feels like we've been abandoned, we are helped by recounting the goodness of God that is behind the dark clouds of hard circumstances. Do not allow your flesh or your friends or the devil to tell you because You have hard things. God is not fair or good. Pain and belief, they just coexist. Pain, belief, pain, belief, pain. He's now overwhelmed. The third and final grief that is expressed here is one that I'm sure you're familiar with. He feels absolutely exhausted. He feels completely overwhelmed. Notice verse 12. He says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Bulls of Bashan. I did a little research on that. So the, the realm of Bashan was a very um, luxurious, kind of prosperous area. And it, it became associated eventually with kind of luxurious um, opulent and eventually unrighteous living. So Bashan became kind of a metaphor for unrighteous living. So when he says bulls of Bashan, he's using it as a metaphor for unrighteous people. Think, um, the dogs of Vegas have got me, okay? Right? Or the cats from Brownsburg are on me. You know, just whatever you want. Or Enough. So uh, you get the point. The point is, is he's being encircled. They, they open wide their mouth, verse 13, like a, a ravening and roaring lion. And then just notice the, the, the metaphors here. I am poured out like water. And if you've ever, you, you have, some of you have to know exactly what, I, I know what this is. I'm sure you do as well. You've got nothing left. You pour out and it's just like, it's, it's dry. You're hoping nobody asks you, for anything more, because it just feels like I don't have anything left. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Everything hurts. My heart is like wax. It just feels like somebody has melted the inside of you. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. Somebody says, how you doing? you're like, uh, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't know how I'm doing. I mean, that, thats the idea. You just—you don't have words to describe the—the the level of of pain and exhaustion. You lay me in the dust of death. You get to the point where you just say, "Lord, I just wish you would just take me home." You go to sleep at night and you just hope, hope I don't wake up. I count all my bones. Verse 17. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing for my clothing they cast lots yet another text pointing us to the gospel this is a fight of faith that the psalmist is in and when you're in the middle of pain and you're trying to battle pain and belief pain and belief pain and belief it is a constant fight this psalmist is surrounded he's being abused he feels forsaken and this has left him feeling absolutely and totally overwhelmed i don't know about you but i love the fact that this is in the bible this is so real this is right where we live when we're in the midst of painful and hard circumstances so pain belief pain belief pain now back to belief notice what he does Verse 19, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. What's he doing there? He's asking God again. He, he's taking his request back to the Lord. He's again calling on God. Don't be far off, O you my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Do you see what he's doing? It's huge. Even though he's gone pain, belief, pain, belief. Even though he's prayed this probably a hundred thousand times, he prays it a hundred thousand and one more time. And then a hundred thousand and two more times. Do you know how much faith it takes to pray about something a hundred thousand and one times? Some of you, the tragedy that's happened in your life is you stop praying because you've lost heart. It takes faith to come back to the Lord in prayer when you've been praying about this thing over and over and over. The prayer request sounds like, Lord, we have talked about this for 15 years. And you get weary, and you get frustrated, and you feel abandoned, and yet for you to come back to the Lord again and say, God, would you reach my son? God, would you reach my daughter? God, would you reach my husband, my wife? God, I pray that you would you'd help me in this situation where I just ultimately feel abandoned and forsaken. To pray that prayer and ask for God's help again when heaven has been silent for years it takes an enormous amount of faith. And when you do that, you use prayer to help keep you trusting. That's the beautiful thing. Prayer creates the trust. There's something about praying while in pain that keeps you trusting. That's what the psalmist does. He says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. You, my help, come quickly to aid me. You trust by praying, you keep trusting by keep praying. What happens is that in prayer, you keep faith alive and strong. Prayer acknowledges our need for God. In the same way that 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care upon Him, because He cares for you. If you want to humble, you humble yourself by casting those two are linked. It's a participle casting linked to the word humble. Humble by casting. In other words, you trust by praying. Here's the mistake that some of you are making is you have thought that simply because there has been silence from heaven that you don't need to pray anymore about this and so you've given up. It's caused your faith to shrink. It's caused you to become settled in sort of this fatalistic perspective and the call today is to keep trusting by praying. Don't let the enemy convince you or let your flesh convince you that there's no use praying. God isn't answering you're not praying just for an answer you're praying so that you can keep trusting you humble yourself by casting your anxieties and you keep trusting by continually calling upon him so pain, belief, pain, belief, pain, belief and now we come to the end which is hope the psalmist It's bounced back and forth, and now he looks expectantly towards the day when God will ultimately answer, when God will ultimately triumph. And this is why we have the end of the story in our Bibles. Because there's no doubt about where everything is going. One's eschatology, where things end inform how you live right now. Verse 22, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. He's talking here about corporate worship. And incidentally, this is the same verse that the writer of Hebrews quotes in regards to Jesus entering our world as a human being, that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers before the presence of a holy, righteous God. It's just unbelievable that the writer of Hebrews would use this text. The idea is that Jesus enters our world, and in the midst of our pain, He enters into the communion of humanity, and He stands with us together before the glorious reality of all that God is for us. It is not a shame to call us brothers. It's just remarkable. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him, all you offspring of Jacob. Glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. Notice he takes his heart up in worship. Verse 24 to 26, continue with this theme that suffering is not wasted, for He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him. These are all things he believes in faith. But he has heard when he cried to him, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. What's he doing? He's saying this isn't going to last forever. He's banking his hope on God's ability to make it all right. There will come a day when the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. That may not be until you see Jesus face to face, but that day will come. It's the message of the Bible. And Christ experienced the abandonment of the Father to guarantee that those who receive Christ as their Savior have that very experience as their own. When the enemy tempts you to think, that your pain is pointless or capricious, the psalmist in Psalm 22 pushes back on that with this statement, that the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. And then notice how it ends in this glorious flourish of triumph. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Do you hear the Great Commission? Do you hear Revelation 7 of every nation, tribe, and tongue? He's talking here about global worship, global service. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive posterity shall serve him it shall be told of the lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it in other words it is finished that's how revelation ends it's done I make all things new. It's what Jesus inaugurated when He hung on the cross. And He said, it is finished. And the psalmist says at the end of the day, it comes where Jesus' Father and Holy Spirit in their wonderful triunity, bring to completion everything that God has designed. I hope you're grateful for Psalm 22 because it lays out a beautiful pattern with so many gospel overtones for those who feel forsaken, who feel abused, who feel overwhelmed. I hope you know Christ as your Savior, because this text only applies to those who, have, who are hidden behind the forsakenness of Jesus. The psalmist shows us that pain and belief, they, they coexist Listen to me, that forsakenness and feeling forsaken is not ultimate. In fact, even your forsakenness, as horrible and as seemingly unforgivable as it is or was, can still be redemptive. Listen to me. Even though you were forsaken, it can still be used for redemptive purposes. And if you say, Mark, what are you talking about? How can this be used for redemption, I would bring you to the cross and say, if God can use that for redemption, He can take your forsakenness and redeem it. What God does is He takes pain and belief, and when God is in control, those things can simply coexist for God's glory and our good. So when you feel forsaken, take heart, even when that anchor your soul to the message of this psalm and to the cross of Christ that forsakenness ultimately ends in victory when God is in control of it all. So if you feel forsaken, you must learn how to live in the yet. That pain plus belief equals hope. And there is no greater example of that than the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask You to brand this concept To our souls, because there will come moments in our lifetime when we need to be reminded that when we feel forsaken, there is a floor bought by the blood of Jesus. We anchor our hearts to the truth that all things work together for good to those who know God, to those who are called according to His purpose. There is a floor to feeling abandoned. So, Father, we pray that even now as we sing and respond to You, that our hearts would be drawn back to the yet moment. God, we're hurting, yet You're holy. We're in pain, yet You are righteous. We're struggling, yet You're good. We are confused, but yet we know that You are in control And so help us to live in this double reality with lots of pain and even more belief. So help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.